Hi, I'm Chandra from Auckland. During this lockdown, I never knew that I'll be teaching my son how to play guitar. From somebody that does not know how to play guitar and learning it from YouTube, this is something new for me and such an enjoyable time to do with my son. Very cool, Chandra. I think that's a great way to spend the lockdown learning a new instrument and getting some awesome quality time with your son at the same time. Great idea. Kia ora, I'm Indira Stewart. Welcome to the RNZ Coronavirus Podcast. Don't forget to keep sending in your messages using our RNZ Vox Pop app. It's free and it's super easy to use and we love hearing from you guys, so do get in touch with us. Later, our producer Katie Gossett looks at workers who face an uncertain future because of COVID-19. And we've also got Otago University epidemiologist Dr Patricia Priest who'll explain why physical distancing is still important at Level 3 even though we have so few new cases. But first, here are the headlines. The Director-General of Health, Dr Ashley Bloomfield, revealed two new cases of COVID-19 yesterday. One is a confirmed case in Auckland. Now, that person is currently under quarantine from international travel. And Dr Bloomfield says the other is a probable case where the person is a close contact of someone who has COVID-19. Pleased to say no additional deaths to report today. And we have six people in hospital none of whom are in intensive care. 2,637 tests were completed and our combined total to date is 128,073 tests. Of our cases, 1,229 are reported as recovered. That's an increase of 15 on yesterday and now comprises 83% of all cases. There have been 742 complaints from the public over businesses not complying with Level 3 rules. Now, the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says most of them relate to a lack of physical distancing and operating practices. MB, MPI and other agencies will be following up on uh, a further proportion of these uh, complaints. Uh, agencies have been tasked in particular cases where they've triaged. Uh, 61 cases in particular are being followed up on. So while our preference is to educate and engage with businesses to ensure they're operating within the rules, we will not hesitate to take firmer measures if required. I asked a couple of questions this morning, um, particularly of some of the images I've seen of areas and there were a couple of persistent photos that lingered around from some places in particular. Uh, and I've been told that um, uh, and Health have actively reached out to uh, uh, some of those businesses to make sure that they are working with them on the ground to improve their practices to stop congregation at their um, place of uh, business. Here are some other stats on our first few hours at Level 3. The police say there were 104 breaches in the first 18 hours. Now, the majority of people were let off with warnings, but 21 have been prosecuted. Over at the Epidemic Response Committee, the focus was on the health system, and the committee first heard from Auckland University School of Medicine Professor Des Gorman. Professor Gorman says the epidemic has exposed serious problems with New Zealand's health system, particularly the underinvestment in public health units by successive governments. We've got 12 public health units managed by 20 DHBs, 
but the ministry has never held them accountable for delivering public health outcomes in a meaningful way. And when you look at the way the ministry monitors DHBs, then one of the easiest places to reduce their costs has been to disinvest in the areas where they're not monitored or held accountable, which are public health units. Hence, we went into this pandemic with a very poor preparedness because we had completely diminished our public health capacity. Concerns about public health units were echoed by the director of the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists, Sarah Dalton. Now, she says there's a lack of investment across the entire health system. I note that the Global Health Security Index rates us 80th in the world on beds per capita and 42nd in the world on doctors per capita, which means we've got work to do to ensure we can better meet that health demand. Professor Gorman says part of the problem is that too much power is in the hands of district health boards. We essentially had one DHB for every ITM rugby team. And I think what you're looking at is the success of provincialism over rationalism. The structure we have is rigid, it's not flexible, it's, it's devolved, and it's not joined up by any central sophisticated commissioning. And Sarah Downton says that even after the COVID-19 epidemic is over, it's essential to fix our public health units. We can't afford to return to a system that was unable to prepare for and respond to outbreaks, such as the unsafe water supply in Hawke's Bay, recent measles and mumps epidemics, rheumatic fever, TB, even syphilis. These are all preventable diseases. Here's the Prime Minister's response. I would agree that we do need to rebuild our health system and particularly the investment in public health. That is something that I would have said even before COVID-19 and was part of this government's agenda. But what we're seeing is some specific elements of public health that did need that extra investment and modernisation. Previously, there probably hasn't been the reason for PHUs who have operated separately to necessarily have the, the national footing that we now see is so, so necessary. Dealing with TB, dealing with rheumatic fever. We may well have had that advice post-measles, but we're still in the aftermath of working through that to have made that determination. But the fact we've managed to change our footing uh, within a month, I think, demonstrates that we can be agile. Now, it's been revealed by the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Winston Peters, that the Ministry of Health recommended the government to close its borders to everyone, including New Zealand nationals. From its health perspective, this was understandable and appropriate advice. But the Coalition Cabinet rejected that advice because it was and is inconceivable to us that we would ever turn our backs on our own people. Winston Peters says health officials pushed real strong for the closure. About 80,000 New Zealanders have since returned home, including on repatriation flights organised by the government. The Prime Minister says the idea of locking New Zealanders out was never entertained, but she says the Ministry of Health was simply doing its job in offering the advice. Dr Ashley Bloomfield says public health was their main consideration. The approach was really clear, keep it out, stamp it out, and it was clear at that point in time that most of our new cases were coming, still coming in across the border. So we wanted Cabinet to understand, from a public health perspective, if we were to mitigate that risk of cases coming in across the border, ideally we would close the border for a period, mm. Cabinet weighed up the full range of matters, including of course other legal obligations, in yeah. making their decision. Dr Bloomfield says he doesn't regret Cabinet ignoring the advice 
because the government went ahead with implementing a quarantine system at the border to mitigate the ministry's concerns. Winston Peters also commented on the growing calls for an independent international investigation into the origin of COVID-19. Now China has been rejecting calls for a probe, saying that they're politically motivated and it would divert current resources being used to stop the spread of coronavirus. All I've ever said is it is very hard to conceive, no matter what the country is, of there not being a desire by every country in the world, including the country of origin, for an investigation to find out how this happened. All logic and reason suggests that that's the responsible thing to do. I made that statement and I stand by it. Now across the Tasman, calls for an independent international investigation has caused relations with China to sour. The Chinese ambassador to Australia warned of a consumer boycott of Australian goods in China. Well, Mr Peters dismissed suggestions that there could be similar economic consequences in New Zealand because of his comments. No, I'm not worried about that because China's promised me they don't behave that way. The Chinese at the very highest level have promised me over the years, and I've been engaged in China going all the way back to having a, a colleague called Zhuron Zhe, who had long time, spent a long time with him 22 years ago, that they don't behave that way. I take them at their word. Meanwhile, Jacinda Ardern is backing the Health Minister David Clark after news broke that he moved items from his old house to his new house while under Level 4 lockdown. Well, according to the government's COVID-19 website, people are only allowed to move house under extreme circumstances during Level 4. David Clark says he'd done the bulk of moving before the lockdown and he hasn't breached the rules on this occasion. Both houses are just down the road from each other and Mr Clark says he was using the old one as an office. The Prime Minister defended him. I was aware that the Minister before lockdown uh, had moved home before lockdown. Uh, this was something that he completed a sale um, before even New Zealand even had a COVID case. If I believe it's warranted uh, for a minister uh, to be severely reprimanded for demotion to occur, I will not hesitate on that. But based on the information I've received, I do not believe that is warranted in this case. And if you've been tuning in to the daily one o'clock press conferences, you might be wondering why the Prime Minister is back with Dr Ashley Bloomfield at the podiums. You will have heard me... Uh, say um, that uh, recently was uh, set down to be our, our last for the foreseeable future press conference together. Uh, but you will also have heard me repeatedly say that life at level three is very similar to life at level four and so we decided to extend that mantra into the way that we're treating it with our press conferences. So after some feedback uh, you will find us here together till the remainder of level uh, three. It was supposed to be a big relief for New Zealand households this week as an estimated 400,000 people returned to the workforce. But one economist says things will get much worse before they get better and many workers still face an uncertain future. While well, our producer Katie Gossett had a look at how some of those families are doing. Karen's feeling pretty tired when I talk to her mid-afternoon. She's been watching TV and catching up with her six children. Time she enjoys when she's not too exhausted from her overnight job in the disability sector. So I'm a support worker. I do graveyard shifts, 12-hour night shifts, seven days over a fortnight. So it can be quite physical and very draining at this 
moment with everything going on. Her husband, a contract worker who installs insulation, has been at home, unable to work during the lockdown. So Karen's been picking up extra hours on top of her shifts, sometimes as many as 40 extra hours. I'm kind of looking forward to it all being over a little bit so I can take some, some leave. Yeah, I feel like I'm probably in bed more times than I am up doing stuff on my days off because I'm just absolutely knackered. This week's been a good one because her husband was able to get back to work, but it feels like it's just a reprieve. I'm not too sure how long he's going to be there, to be honest. It doesn't look like there's a hell of a lot of work. At this stage, there's about three weeks' worth. So we're just not really sure exactly what's happening there and whether it's going to be an ongoing thing or not. But, yeah, three weeks isn't really reassuring. It's an uncertainty that many New Zealanders are facing, and economist Shamu Yakub says it's just the beginning. I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. The number of people on the job seeker benefit has reached 175,000, with 30,000 applications in the last month alone. Shamu Yakub is reluctant to make predictions about how that figure might change, as it's too soon to call how things might play out. This thing is going to roll on for many weeks and months to come. And I think everybody's trying to get this kind of firm numbers on what's going to happen to the economy and unemployment and those kinds of things. This is completely unprecedented. No model is prepared to be able to forecast what's going on right now. But some job losses seem certain. The only thing we can confidently say is we're probably going to have closed borders for some time. So the international tourism market will be closed for some time. So let's say that's 100,000 jobs that are probably at risk. There's probably business failures that are coming. There's probably another 100,000 jobs at risk. So that's probably as confident as you can be in terms of the kinds of job losses we might see in the next few months. But beyond that, there's just too many uncertainties. The frightening thing for me is normally in New Zealand, we measure unemployment in tens of thousands. We are going to measure this recession in hundreds of thousands. He's expecting those redundancies to come in three waves. So I think the first wave is the businesses right-sizing, firing folk to kind of deal with the lockdown and the recession they're expecting. There's a second wave that comes almost as a result of the lockdown where some businesses will fail and those jobs will go. And then there's a recession proper that comes because we're all scared of spending money and investing. And there is a global recession which affects our exporters. So these three things are not going to happen at the same time. And as each one rolls along, the pain is going to accumulate. What's been staunching that pain temporarily is the government's wage subsidy. The scheme's paid out $10.4 billion so far to support the incomes of more than 1.5 million New Zealanders. Under the scheme, part-time workers or those working 20 hours or fewer can get $350 a week, and full-timers are eligible for $385.80. Those receiving it are undoubtedly grateful for the government's support. Still, for some families, it is quite a change in income. I think he was getting around $1,600 a week, so he's now getting $585. So you can imagine that's actually quite a huge drop. Sally's husband is a manager in the trade industry, but since the lockdown, money's become tighter. Lucky enough that he put in two weeks annual leave, so we've had that to tide us over. 
and just living a slightly different lifestyle. So um, we've got the mortgage on interest only, which is actually a huge help. But since he's been working from home, he's been limited in the number of hours he can work, so he'll have just eight days of pay in the next cycle. And he gets paid monthly, so there are some challenging times ahead. Yeah, the bank account's not looking too bad, but the reason why it's not looking too bad is because next month's going to be a colour. The family already leads a modest lifestyle, and they're getting by. Sally's hoping they can ride out the coming weeks. If worst comes to worst, we can go down to mortgage holiday, or we can look at... It's changing at the moment, we're only on three months' interest only, so we can do that going forward. Or we can potentially, which I don't want to do, but we could potentially borrow money out of our children's bank accounts if we needed to. So we do have fallbacks. Then, of course, the big question is what happens when the subsidy comes to an end? The government has indicated it will keep working with businesses, and Shamubir Yakub says they'll need that ongoing support. We've seen the, sort of the first one was lending for businesses at some sort of government-guaranteed measure. Uh, that has been quite hard to get up to businesses because in the current environment, businesses are actually very risky and banks are reluctant to lend. There has been things like the tax credits, which is actually really useful, but that probably needs to be extended and expanded, and I suspect that will be the tool they will be looking at really hard. And there may be more they can do. The favourite for me is still around supporting SME lending, so 100% government guarantee for small amounts of loans for small and medium businesses to be able to survive. Because right now that's my biggest fear, is that we're going to lose small and medium businesses, and it's going to take us a long time to recover from that. Of course, some businesses have already failed, and often the first people in line to see the effects of that are food banks. More and more of people saying that they have lost their jobs, that their businesses are no longer um, viable or operational, or that they've had such a significant reduction in, in incomes that they just can't afford to live. That's Christchurch City Missioner Matthew Mark. The mission's food bank's been fielding about 200 calls a day. That's a 300% increase in demand. And then, more recently, there's been a rise in people needing counselling services, social work, and in some cases, medical and mental health support. Quite a lot of them are new clients. Almost a third of those who are engaging with us have never, ever used services at Christchurch City Mission before. And that's as a result of them either losing their jobs or their incomes being reduced to the extent that they just simply cannot make ends meet. So it starts as a small reduction in salary. Their incomes were, at that onset, were, were reduced down to 80-20 and then have taken another cut down to 60-40. And it drops below a third of what people are used to living on. Some are down to now as low as 30% of their original incomes. Until it starts to become something that can actually have a long-term impact. If you've got your regular commitments of rent and food and power and, and you know, your other utilities, to, to go from what you're, you're traditionally used to at 100% you know, income to all of a sudden you're on less than a third of that, um, the challenge about being able to, to meet those costs is, is, is very real. And while Matthew Mark is more often working behind the scenes, there are times he's picked up the phone himself. When I do have those, those conversations, it's incredibly heartrending. And you can you can hear the anxiety and the um, and I guess the, there's an element of, of, of sadness in there as well, uncertainty as to, to what the future might look like. For families like Karen's, facing the future is about being pragmatic. She's thinking about taking on a second job, and her husband's also looking at other work options. 
Yeah, he's kind of been open about it. He's looked around at other insulation companies. We've thought about maybe moving towns. If something else comes up, I can cover him not working, not not for a very long time, but I can cover it for a few months anyway. How hard is it out there to find another job when, when he's been looking? <laughs> it's very hard because, as you know, there's quite a lot of people without work and, you know, a lot of businesses that have closed down. So, yeah, it is very, very hard. I could imagine that, you know, for one job that you're applying for, probably thousands of people are applying for. Shamubil Yakub believes it will take a year before many new businesses are launched, but most workers will weather the storm. Even in the worst of economic times, majority of people will actually be okay. So recessions still happen at the margins, even though it affects the mood of most people. And as long as we're confident about our understanding of what's happening in our business, our sector, our economy, I think people will be able to recover from this quicker as things start to get better and eventually will. You know, it's like any any cycle, these things come and go. This is unusual. It's probably bigger and deeper than what we've seen before. But, you know, in 12 months, 24 months' time, things are going to get a lot better and we need to make sure that we know when that's happening. And sometimes big changes lead to new possibilities. Matthew Mark gives an example that's happened at the Christchurch City Mission in the last month. A lot of its staff were volunteers, many of them over the age of 70. So when COVID-19 struck, they were advised to stay home to keep safe. Faced with that sudden gap in the workforce, the mission got help from an unexpected quarter. Those who were staying in their emergency accommodation, you know, we started doing some life skills training with them because they were locked down with us and uh, started growing and developing some things with them. They then started to, to help out by volunteering um, and amongst some of the, the works that we, we do with the food bank particularly. And then just through the last couple of weeks, with in partnership with MSD, we've been able to offer some flexi work with some of our men from our men's emergency accommodation. And so I guess we've got someone who was historically homeless and, uh, and might have had multiple other challenges within their lives. We've been able to um, to work with them through a number of those challenges to provide some really good outcomes for them to get them into a stage where they are healthy and well and, and are now volunteering for us and are now on a flexi wage so that they're actually being recognised for the work that they're doing. And Shamubil Yakub agrees that at times of change, creative, out-of-the-box solutions come into their own. We tend to see the most creative endeavours in the worst crises. And this is the biggest crisis we're going to face in 100 years. So we're going to see businesses that survive become very lean, very agile, and very creative. And that's a good thing. And so there's an economic term. We call it creative destruction. Um, In the worst of economic times, you lose a lot of businesses. But what is replaced by it is quite often very dynamic, very creative, and creates a huge amount of opportunities for the country. And now that we're in level three and seeing extremely low numbers of cases every day, you might be asking why we still have to keep our physical distance from other people. Well, Otago University epidemiologist, Dr. Patricia Priest explains. As far as we know, there's no ongoing chains of transmission of the COVID-19 virus, but it doesn't mean that there are definitely absolutely no cases in the population. And so if there were any residual cases, say there was um, some asymptomatic transmission that hadn't been picked up, 
we're not seeing transmission, but they're out there. If we all just go straight into normal life, then that person could infect other people and then we start a new chain of transmission. Um, and of course, we don't see those for a bit because it takes a wee while for the time period from being infected to showing symptoms and so on. So if there was a case out there that set up some new chains of transmission, we wouldn't necessarily know for a week or two. And by the time we knew, there'd be a whole lot of cases. So the idea about coming out in stages and being quite careful about that is to try to ensure that if there was, say, an asymptomatic case out there, that um, they weren't able to infect other people over this period. We have seen, you know, now that we're into level three now, we have seen large groups already gathering outside some takeaway shops. And there have been a few complaints about businesses not maintaining social distance. How concerned are you about that? It's a tricky one. I mean, it's true that the probability of somebody you know, in any group of people currently being infectious is pretty low now. But as I said, we we want to make sure that if there are any cases around that haven't been detected, that they're not in a position to infect people and set up new chains of transmission. And if there were any new instances of transmission, we would want to be in a position to really quickly identify and trace and test their close contacts. So we really don't want people to have close contacts with people that they can't identify, like a bunch of people in a queue. I wouldn't say that because that's happening, you know, it's there's a definite and utter disaster about to appear, but we really don't want that to be happening because we, we really need to keep up the good work that we've been doing up until now as we step down until we're, you know, and, and, until we're sure that there's no new, new chains of transmission being um, started. So, I think it's, you know, we've we've done such a good job as a country that we, we just need to keep holding on to that for a bit longer. And um, I, I think it's important that we all kind of continue with what we've got used to. So therefore, you know, doing the, the social distancing at work and in queues um, and while we wait for our takeaways, uh, it's just the sensible thing to do. And it just gives us that extra bit of security that we're doing the right thing. That was Dr Patricia Priest talking about the importance of maintaining physical distancing even under Level 3. Well, stay safe, everyone. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Kia homaru, kia kaha, mā te wai. The Coronavirus Podcast is presented by me, Indira Stewart. It's produced by William Ray, Jesse Chang, Sonia Sly and Katie Gossett. Our sound engineer is Adrian Holley and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can subscribe to the Coronavirus Podcast anywhere and it's free. Just go to the podcast and series page at rnz.co.nz. Music